welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Wow, that was a lot of fun, wasn't it? I thought this was church. Aren't we supposed to be more solemn and serious? It's true, though, right? I mean, you think about King David when he, when he marched into Jerusalem and celebrated, and, and his wife thought he looked like an idiot. Uh, I can relate to that sometimes. So, but uh, he, he danced for joy, and he didn't care. He didn't care. It was a, it was a beautiful moment, a beautiful parade. And, and what's interesting there is, you know, we have parades like that to this day. Yeah, every time there's a great victory, it's followed by a parade. For example, uh, a sports team wins a championship, and they all get the parade. Or after a great war has been won, there's often a parade. And, and that has been happening for as long as we can remember. As long as, as, long as battles and competitions have been happening, we want to celebrate the victory. And so I want you to imagine now, back in first century Rome, there's been a great war that's been waged between Rome and some other enemy. And, and the war is now over because Rome's been successful. But it's not a small little skirmish. It's a, it's a massive war. There, there have been, they've defeated a big foe. At least 5,000 men were involved in the fight. And, and they've conquered some large territory with it. And, and it's been a significant win. And so what they want to do is they want to celebrate but in a very unique, very special way with what they call a triumph. And the triumph was essentially a special parade in honor of the general. And, and there would be a, a specific kind of uh, protocol or routine or, or pattern to this kind of a parade, this triumphal entry. And so it often would begin with Rome's government leaders, the senators and the magistrates, they would come in first. I'm sure there's a joke in there about politicians wanting to piggyback of other people's success, but I won't take that low-hanging fruit. No, I won't. <laughs> but that's how it starts, right? They, they come in first, and then following them are the trumpeters, the musicians, and they're proclaiming the victory for all of, all of Rome to celebrate in. Next behind the trumpeters, these musicians, comes the lute. What they've won now in, as a result, the gold and, and the jewels or, or any kind of artwork or any really special treasure would then follow. For example, when, when Titus conquered Jerusalem, he brought with him the, the furniture from the temple, things like the, the candlestick and the, the table and so forth. And all that would have been brought in as a way of celebrating their victory. After that, they would have paintings or tableaus or even scale models of the war. You got to think about that as like the original highlight film, right? So they're celebrating. Look, watch this battle, and here's what happened. And they're, they're kind of playing it out because the people in Rome wouldn't have known. They might have heard some reports, but now they get to visualize how great of a battle it was. And after the tableaus and the paintings come now the vanquished enemy, the kings and princes, the, the generals who have been defeated, the, the soldiers, and, and maybe even their allies and maybe even their families. And these people, some of them are now marching, you know, in chains, watching all this celebration, but they're not celebrating because some are now going to be imprisoned for life while others will be executed at the end of this parade. And following them are more musicians singing songs of celebration, much like we sung this morning. 
And with them come the priests who are, who are waving the incense, right? Think about those Catholic priests as they walk in with those lantern-type looking censers, and they're just swinging them as that sweet aroma from the censers rise up. And then finally now comes the conquering general himself. And he would be riding on a chariot drawn by four horses, wearing, wearing a unique outfit. He would have a, a purple robe on with, with golden embroidery on it, with another purple toga on top of that, with more golden uh, embroidery on top of that, with a crown seated above his head, celebrating all that he's done, the great honor of the great victory. And behind him are his soldiers. And they're no longer dressed up in their army, their warfare gear. Now they are also celebrating, and they're shouting triumph, shouting triumph throughout the streets. It was a picture that, that the people in Corinth would have firmly understood. They might have witnessed it. They might have even have experienced it firsthand as a soldier, because many of the people in Corinth were soldiers themselves. And so this picture, this understanding of what a triumphal entry really looks like is clear in the minds of these Corinthians. And so Paul, when he writes to them, he says, but thanks to be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma, the knowledge of him in every place. They understand. Because there's a great parallel in all that. Between the angels, you know, and the government magistrates and the, the musicians and even the vanquished foes. And our general, being Jesus Christ, leading us as we are his soldiers. We're not the ones, and some commentators try to say, well, we're the ones that have been captured. No, 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 we're, we're behind him. He's leading us. And we're shouting triumph. We're exceeding, excitingly, and overwhelming, a, a joyful celebration of all that he has done. Why does this matter? Why is this so important in this passage? Well, let's pray and find out. Got to keep it a cliffhanger, right? All right. Lord Jesus, our general, our conquering hero, we celebrate what you've done, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And Father, because of what our older brother Jesus has done, he's, he's paved the way for us. He's leading us. He's guiding us. And we get to now join with what you're up to and experience this incredible victory today. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, this morning that... You would, you would speak to us in ways that are encouraging, ways that are exciting, ways that motivate us now, compel us to share this beautiful life that you've given to us. In your name we pray, amen. Well, we're going on in our, our passage here in 2 Corinthians, and, and Paul, he's, he's continuing on. He's still kind of explaining to the Corinthians all that was happening as he left Ephesus and was going up to, uh, originally going to visit them, but decided not to, went north instead. And, and so again, he's, he's explaining to them why he went north around the Aegean Sea. And he says in, in verse 12 of chapter 2, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when there a door was opened for me in the Lord. So Troas is in Asia. And we, we saw this earlier on in chapter 1 where he talked about going to Asia because there was an open door, going to Asia expecting that there was going to be incredible things that God was going to do, that it was going to be an opportunity to share the gospel and, and hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of people would come to Christ. But it wasn't that way. As we saw earlier in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, that it was hard. It was difficult. It was so hard and difficult he was wanting to die. We saw that it was more than Paul could handle. 
And that, that really, that, that idea that at least God won't give you more than you can handle is simply not the case. It's not true. That there are times where God will give us more than we can handle. Why? Well, the good news is, as we saw, that, that maybe especially in these difficult times, obviously in all times, but maybe especially in these difficult times, our Father's at work. He's working in our hearts, and he's, what he's doing, he's developing within you and I a greater trust, a greater dependence upon him. So as Paul says that he would learn not to trust in himself, but the God who raises the dead. And I find great encouragement here because here is the great Apostle Paul, the wise and the mature Apostle Paul, who even at this time is still at times trusting in himself, trusting in his own ability rather than trusting in our Father. And what he goes on to say and will go on to tell us is that, that the suffering, as bad as it was, was worth it. Because the reward of walking and knowing Jesus, the reward of experiencing that resurrection life, was worth it. So he goes on to explain what's happened. He says in verse 13, I had no rest of my spirit. I was miserable in Asia. And not finding Titus, my brother, who he had sent with that sorrowful letter, he says, I took my leave of them and I went on to Macedonia. So Macedonia is the province north of the Aegean Sea. And he settles into the city of Philippi in Macedonia. And that's where he meets up with Titus. And that's where he learns that, that this sorrowful letter that he had written earlier to the, to the Corinthians was received well. And so now he's writing this letter back to them. What's interesting, though, is now he's going to take a bit of a break from the story. In fact, he's not going to pick it up again until the beginning of chapter 7. So for about four and a half chapters, Paul's going to go on a rabbit trail. Now, please understand, this is not Paul writing this story and then all of a sudden seeing a squirrel going, oh, that's interesting. No, he is going on an aside, but it's, it's a beautiful, powerful one. Much like Romans, much of Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 is an aside. Or 1 Corinthians 13 is an aside. There's so much power and there's so much wisdom and there's so much hope in these passages. And I think really in these, these next four and a half chapters is such, such deep theology, such deep meat for us that will encourage us and, and give us hope, I believe. Because what he's going to do is he's going to share with us now what it means to be a minister, what it means to be a minister of the gospel. You see, I think it's very much connected to the story of Asia because he's got to explain to them now why Asia was difficult and why that is to be understood and expected even. And it's because we're ministers of the gospel. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, great, now we're going to spend four and a half chapters talking about pastors and missionaries. That's not the case. It's going to be describing you and I. Because in the new covenant, each and every one of us, we are ministers of that new covenant. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are all priests in this kingdom. And priests are just messengers of God. That's who all of us are. And then he goes on in, in chapter 4, verse 10, Peter writes, And each one of us who received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We need to, need to understand that the, there isn't this separation between those who are pastors and everyone else. That each and every one of us are ministry workers. Not all the same, but unique in every way, but nonetheless serving. Because there are many forms of ministry. 
There's a ministry of caring for one another. There's a, there's a ministry of music that we just experienced. There's a ministry of praying for one another and a beautiful ministry of comforting and encouraging and supporting one another. That's just a few of these various ministries. And there's all kinds of many more. And they're all good and they're all wonderful. But, but I think it's sometimes too easy for us to settle into the one another's and forget that there are others who are not yet one another. What I mean is that it's easy to get fixated on how do we serve our own community? How do we serve the church? Whether it be only the people here at New Life Fellowship or maybe even other believers and sort of begin to forget about that there are people who don't yet have that relationship with Jesus. The role that I'm talking about is the role of evangelism that we all play in. Now, for some, that means that sharing their faith with total strangers, some of them can do it with ease. I am not one of those people. And I see them, and I, I marvel at how easy it is for them just to walk up with people and start a conversation and, and talk to them about the gospel. And that's beautiful. And he's called and equipped those people as, as evangelists. But please understand, there is an office. There is a role of the evangelist. And just like there are some who are called apostles and some who are called prophets and some who are called pastor elders, not all are apostles. Not all are prophets. Not all are pastors. But what's interesting is while not all are prophets, some are, can still prophesy. And understanding that prophesying is just encouraging, exhorting, and comforting. Not all are, are pastors, and yet they can serve in that function at times. And so we may not all be called evangelists. We may not all be called to go and publicly share our faith with strangers, but we are still called to share our faith. Each and every one of us, Peter says, is to be, be ready on a moment's notice to give the reason why we have such hope. Isn't this the Great Commission? Remember Matthew 28? In verse 18, Jesus says to them, all authority has been given me to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, because I have all this authority, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, please understand that go doesn't mean go off to foreign countries. Go off to Asia. Go off to Africa. Go to Europe. Go to a country western bar. Right? He's not talking about going to these far off places, per se. He's simply saying, literally, as you are going, as you are living your life, whether it be on your street at home, in your neighborhood, or be it at work, or while you're in the grocery store, as you are going, live out your faith. And I think it's so powerful here. And he says, now listen, but don't forget, I'm with you. All that power and all that authority, I'm with you. So that you and I now can actually share the, the life of Jesus. Now, chances are, this is not the first time someone has talked to you about the topic of evangelism. It's not the first time we've even talked about it here at New Life. And there's a high chance that you'll sit there and be going, this, yes, this is, this, is, this is important. This is really important. Someone should do that. <laughs> and then nothing happens. Anyone else can relate, or am I the only one? I thought about that this week. Why, why does that happen? Because I, I know it's not from a lack of desire. 
I know it's not because we just don't care about it. There, there is a desire in there, but I believe that there are, is real struggles as to why we don't. For some, it's they just they don't know how. They're, they're kind of stuck on the how part, believing that there's really one right way to do it, which there's not. Others are, are sort of stuck in that mindset of, well, I'm just waiting for the right opportunity to present itself, which, to be honest, will never present itself, at least very rarely, if you're waiting for that. But I think, I think the biggest obstacle, the one that, that gets uh, us you know, locked up the most, the one that prevents us from the most from sharing our faith with people who don't yet know Jesus, is we're afraid of the reaction. We're afraid of the rejection. We're afraid of, of the negative response that might come our way. And I understand that. And so what others have done is they've created these tools for us. How many people are familiar with the Romans Road? That was more of a 70s thing. And then they had the four spiritual laws. And, and then they, now that, you know, E3, they have the, the, the three circles they like to use. All, all great and wonderful tools. And, and they try to equip people and say, here are the tools, now go and do it. And yet we still struggle with it. Because even if you have the slickest, cleanest presentation, there's still all this fear. There's still all this insecurity. And I think it's partly because as wonderful as the tools are, a tool is only as good as the power behind it. I mean, think about it. If you have a, a, a corded drill or, or a circular saw, but it's not plugged in, it doesn't make a very good hammer. <laughs> Right? Or, or, or a saw or a drill. That's really what it's for, right? But it's not good. It needs the power to drive it. And too often, I think, in our evangelism, we're missing that power. And so I think Paul is trying to tell us where that power is going to come from. So in 2 Corinthians 2, verses beginning 14, he says, but thanks be to God. So here now he's starting to, to take his, his aside. He's going down this other trail now, talking about ministers of the new covenant. Specifically about sharing faith, sharing with people who may or may not receive it well. And in this case here in, in Asia, in Troas, it was not received well. But he says to them, but thanks be to God who always leads us in this triumph. He's, he's remembering this parade. He's remembering this celebration. And it's Jesus who's leading us and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we, we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death, and another from life to life. Who is adequate for such things? Who's adequate for such things? I think of this verse often. Who's adequate to share the gospel? Who's adequate to share the life of Jesus? I mean, it's, it's terrifying for me every week to get up here and, and stand here and proclaim to you the word of God for a couple reasons. Number one, what if I misspeak? What if I say something in error? Not intentionally, but in error. Now, not only am I kind of going down the wrong path, but now I've led you down the wrong path. I don't want to do that. But two... Who could ever be qualified? Who could ever be adequate to share such good news? And the good, the good news is no one is. And that's OK. Because it's not about you. It's about what Jesus has done. 
about how he's the one that's leading us in victory, how he's the one who's going to bring it about. You see, we have to understand that, that Jesus is our secret weapon. And I think that's the key to this passage. The key to understanding this passage is that it's about Jesus, who's a very much alive and living in you and I today. I think that's, that's a part that I know I've missed for so much of my Christian life. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 15, verse 18. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in obedience to the Gentiles by word and deed. Think about that. I mean, Paul, he did a lot for God, did he not? As a Pharisee, he did a lot for God. He dedicated his, God, his life to God. He was memorizing God's word. He was teaching God's word. And then he was persecuting the church. That's what he did for God in his own strength. This is all useless. Don't want to talk about any of what I have done. The only thing I want to talk to you about, the only thing that matters is what Jesus has accomplished through me. See, I think too often Christianity has been reduced to this idea of what can I do for God? What am I doing for Jesus? And, and the Christian life really is all about what is Jesus doing through me? Do you see the change of focus? It's not about me. It's about him. And, and too often we've made it about the imitation of Christ when it ought to be the participation of Christ. Now, some have heard this, and they've, they've accused this of being just a passivity kind of teaching, that since you don't have to do anything, you're really just encouraging Christians to sit out the fight, to do nothing. Far from it. Far from it. In fact, it was me beginning to understand that it's, it's not about me. It's about Jesus in me that actually got me off the couch, that got me off the sidelines and into the battle. Paul writes in Colossians 1.29, he says, for this purpose, the purpose being to reveal the mystery of Christ in us, he says, for this purpose, I labor, I work, striving even according to his power, his might, which mightily works within me. See, Paul says, I'm, I'm still working. I'm, I'm still doing things. My doer is not broken. My doer has not been shut off. But I'm accomplishing things now, more things than I ever could imagine before, because I've tapped into this strength. I've tapped into this power of leaning not on my own strength, but on Jesus. And that's what we have in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live today, the life that I live in this body, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. If, you, if you've been paying attention to when we get up here and speak, you have heard that verse a few times. And that's on purpose. That's by design. Because this verse is so powerful, it's so critical that we understand this verse. And, and maybe you're even tempted to tune me out right now, going, oh, yeah, he's, he's back on this verse again. I've heard this. I've Move on. But don't do that. Let this verse hit you like you've never heard it before. Because the words that Paul wrote some 2,000 years ago in this verse are just as practical and as powerful as anything else you'll read in the Bible. See, what he says is the old me is gone. That person who, who was inadequate, who was not good enough, who was undeserving, who was the problem, was crucified with Christ. 
More than just my sins were paid for on that cross, my old self was crucified with him. No longer lives. Doesn't come back from time to time. Doesn't make reappearances. He's not a special guest star at times in my life. He is gone for all times, crucified and buried. And I've been raised up as a new creation, a new person who's so right and righteous and holy that God himself can now take up residence inside of me, that God himself now is in me to such a degree that we become one, one spirit. Now, please understand, that's not that I lose my uniqueness. That doesn't mean that I lose my human spirit. The great picture really is, is the marriage that we have. Joy and I are married, and at that moment, we became one. But, but I didn't stop being me, and she didn't stop being her. We're both unique individuals, but together we were one, and we function together. We live together. And that's the case with Jesus and I now, is that I'm still me, he's still him, but now we're united, and we're one, and we live together. We function together now. And Jesus and me is not passive. Far from it. Jesus, I believe, he wants to live a life of significance in me and in you, in each and every one of us. A, a life that is an adventure that is tailor-made for you. Isn't that what Ephesians 2.10 says? That, that you are his workmanship, his, his beautiful creation, his work of art created beforehand that you and him together would walk in these good works together. And so he's going to be the power behind all this. So there's many different illustrations I thought of that could kind of illustrate this concept here. And the one I settle on for this week is I want you to picture a light bulb. And a light bulb has one simple purpose. What's the, what's the purpose of a light bulb? Light up a room. To chase away the darkness and bring light to whatever room it's in. Now holding that light bulb on its own, how much light does it give off? None. It needs power. It needs electricity to run through, in the old indecent version, the, the, uh, the filament across in order to bring light. Now, I have some options. I could maybe put on a wool sweater, rub my wool sweater as much as I can, and then touch the light bulb and try to create static electricity. How effective do you think that will be? I think I would get more of a shock than the light bulb would. And if, if it miraculously somehow produced a little bit of light, how long would it last for? And then I got to do it all over again. <laughs> it's getting tired. And you see, that's essentially when me trying to live life on my own, trying to muster up the courage, muster up the strength, whether it be to share my faith with someone, whether it be to love my wife, to love my family, whether it be to, to be kind and gracious to my friends and even those who oppose me. Whew. It doesn't work. But that's not what the light bulb is looking for. Instead, there is a socket that you can screw the light bulb into. And that socket is connected to a power supply that's, for all accounts and purposes, unlimited. And the moment you plug that in and have that power turned on, boom, the room lights up. And that power now is flowing through the light bulb. That's how it was designed. That's how it was created. And that's the case for you and I, is that Jesus is the power. And we're connected to him. All that remains now is for us to flip the switch 
to, to rely on his power rather than our own. So what does that mean practically? What does it mean practically to, to flip that switch? Well, simply it means to actually talk with him and walk with him and listen to him and rely upon him. And so we, we're talking to him about what, what's next. What do I do in this moment? What do I do in this situation? I might get an idea. Maybe it is an idea to, to share my faith with someone, to offer them to, can I pray for you this situation, or, or to say something that might start a conversation. And I get that thought. My first instinct is, well, that's risky. <laughs> I don't know. But then my next thought is, is that what you want, Jesus? Is this the moment where I, I say something? And if I believe in my spirit that they, yes, go for it. That doesn't take away all the fear, doesn't take away all the insecurity, but below all that is a confidence that this is what Jesus is saying. And he says, I know it's not going to be easy, but trust me on this one. Take, take the chance. What do I say, Jesus? Say this. What do I say next? Don't worry about next. Just say that first. Don't have to figure out the whole conversation. So we say it. And then they respond. And then you have that beautiful, elegant prayer. Help, Lord. <laughs> now what? And then you get an idea. And you get another idea. You get another thought. And you're trusting Jesus in that moment. You're listening to him. You're talking to him. And now you're actually letting him live it out through you. There's a, there's a beautiful story of Major Ian Thomas. And I, I was, thought about reading it in, in this book. They found the secret. And I'm, I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to kind of recount it to you. But it's a great book, by the way, here, just sort of giving us the, the testimonies of a lot of great saints, men and women who've, who've found this secret of what it means to trust Jesus in them. Stories like Hudson Taylor and others. But Adrian Thomas, he was a very young man. I think he was uh, in his teens when he came to faith. And he was immediately excited, like absolutely excited to share the gospel. He immediately began to preach much like the Apostle Paul and others. Except for Ian Thomas, he was not a successful preacher. That every time he'd get up and he would preach and then he would do an altar call, it was silence. There was no reaction. And week after week after week, he kept failing. And he was getting down and frustrated and ready to give up. And then lying in bed one night, he began to hear God speak to him. And verses began to pop into his mind. Like in Colossians 3, about how Christ is now our life. And for to me to live is Christ. And it's no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. And, and Jesus began to reveal to him that, that Jesus came to live in Ian Thomas, to live in Ian Thomas, to actually live through him. And so Ian Thomas got this idea, this radical idea. And he says, OK, Jesus, I'm not going to preach anymore. I'm going to trust you to do it. Now, again, does that mean that Ian Thomas now just hung out in his room and waited for the reports? No, because where did Jesus live? In Ian. And so Christ and Ian Thomas began to minister. Christ and Ian Thomas began to speak. And, and Ian, Major Ian Thomas, he, he began to recount this great joy that came over him. This great peace, because he understood it wasn't about him. It wasn't relying on his strength and power. Instead, now what he could do is he could trust in Jesus. And he makes the point, he says, I did not gain a single iota of extra power that day. I already possessed it all. 
All he was doing, in essence, was flipping the switch. And that life and that power began to flow. You see, I think that's the secret to evangelism. It's not about having a special presentation. That may be helpful. Please understand, that might be good. But that's not what it's about. It's not even about drumming up the courage. It's simply about trusting Christ in you and then acting on the opportunities that he presents himself as you are going. See, that's, that's the thing. It's not like these special moments. It's all the time. And the reason is because the world is watching. The world is watching how we, how we treat one another, how we treat our families, how we treat them, and how we treat those who are opposing us, who don't agree or even like us. They're watching that. And what's interesting is they know how we're supposed to respond. Because when they see the flesh in us, they call it out. And they say, that's not right. I thought you were supposed to be different. And they're right. We are called to be different. And what's beautiful is they get to just see Jesus naturally. And that can sometimes alone pique their curiosity. There's a great story in, in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in prison, actually in Philippi, where he's writing this letter, actually. And he, they've been in prison because, well, they cause trouble wherever they go, and people don't like that. And so they're thrown in this prison. And what do they do in prison? So they, they moan and groan and complain. You know, take the, the tin cup across the bar. I almost want to go to prison just for that moment. I don't think it's worth it, but I'm, I'm almost tempted to do that. But, but they're sitting in there, and they're just beginning to sing songs, sing songs of praise. I don't know if they were upbeat songs or, or, or quieter songs, but they were songs of worship. And suddenly, an earthquake begins to shake the jail. The door swings open. Now the jailer freaks out, and he sees this, and he goes, my prisoners have escaped. I'm a dead man, because that's not good. And they don't just dock my pay. They dock my head. So I'm in trouble. So he runs to the jail. And what does he see sitting in the jail? Paul and Silas, not running for their freedom, even though I believe God sent the earthquake to set them free. They didn't run. They were just sitting there. Now, why didn't they run? Because Jesus didn't tell them to. Jesus said, stay and watch what I'm about to do. And so they stayed. And the jailer comes, and he sees this. And he says, why are you here? And Jesus says to Paul and Silas, now tell them about me. And that jailer got saved. His whole family got saved. Simply because Paul and Silas were not trusting in their own strength, but in Jesus. And so that's the case for you and I. He's simply asking us to trust him and be willing to talk about him, be willing to talk about our faith with those around us. That's what it means to be a witness, to just express your life and share about it. We don't need to be preaching. You don't need to be getting up and talking about your faith all the time, but simply letting people know that they ought to know that you're a Christian. But they ought to know that there is something about you and Jesus that's very important to you. And maybe that's curious. Maybe that's odd to them. Maybe they don't even heard or know this man named Jesus. I mean, we live in a, in a society today where the generations that are coming, Jesus is clueless. They have no idea who he is. 
And so maybe now you can just begin to start conversations with them about it. I have a friend. He, he, he likes to ask them this question. He says, if, if you had a magic wand, what would be different in your life? You know, what, what would you change? You know, is, is there something in health that you're struggling with? Is there, is there frustration you're up against? What would you like to see different in your life? And they tell them, and he says, well, my family and I, we like to pray. We, we believe in Jesus. We believe in a God who does miracles. And is it OK if we pray for that, if we pray for you? And that simple conversation isn't demanding anything of them, but it's introducing them to that you have a faith in a God and that you're going to pray for them. And then maybe, maybe that prayer comes to, to fruition, and they come back to you and tell you. I was worried about that doctor's appointment, and, and, and it turned out there was nothing to worry about. Wow, praise God. Or, you know, that, that thing that was frustrated at work, it took care of itself. Wow, praise God. Or maybe it didn't, didn't happen yet. We'll keep praying. We'll keep praying for you. And what's happened now is a, as a door begins to open, and an opportunity presents itself. And, and I wish I could tell you is that that door opens, and you, you share the gospel, and suddenly everything works out. Suddenly, everything is good, and salvation comes, and hallelujah, angels sing, and it's wonderful. But that's, that's not the case. Yes, some will receive it with excitement. It will be that, that sweet fragrance, that sweet aroma that Paul talked about from life to life. And they'll look at you, and they'll think, where has this been all my life? And they will pray with you, and they'll receive Jesus, and there will be a party in heaven. But others, not so much. For some, that fragrance, that, that, that truth of Jesus living in and through you will be a vile odor, an odor of death to death. And we need to understand that that's OK, that, that it's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be received well. But we don't have to take that personally. It doesn't mean you failed. doesn't mean you made a mistake. It simply means that this person is not yet ready. Maybe later, maybe in a month, maybe in two months. But right now, not yet. Maybe you just planted a little seed that later on someone else will come along and plant some dirt on top, and then another person will water, and, and then maybe a little while later, the, something will sprout. I mean, think about the Apostle Paul. He heard the gospel as the Pharisee, and he didn't like it. It wasn't until much later that he actually received Jesus. But all that, that time where people were, were preaching the gospel and he heard it didn't go in vain. Keep in mind, he was there when Stephen preached the gospel and then was executed. It did not go in vain. All Jesus is saying is, will you trust me? And what an opportunity it is. And so he goes on in, in verse 17 now, and he says, but we are not like many, peddling the word of God. That word for peddling is literally the word huckster. And it breaks my heart that there are people who are using the word of God, hucksters that are using the word of God to profit off of. It's OK, and we're going to see that later on in this book. It's OK to, to make a living off the gospel. It's OK to be paid to share the gospel. What's not OK here is the idea to get rich off the gospel. To, to live in such a way where it's just padding your own nest and your own wallet in that sense. He says, we're, we're not doing that. 
It's not about the fame and the fortune and the glory. That's not what it is for Paul and Titus and others. He says, we're sharing the word of God from sincerity, as from God, because we speak Christ. We speak Jesus in the presence and the sight of God. That's what we're doing. And so that's what we're offering now. We're we're sharing Jesus. And we can't control how others are going to respond We can't control the outcome of it, but we can control whether we're going to trust and act. And again, even when those times you fail, it doesn't mean that you did anything wrong. It just means maybe it's not time yet. But what an opportunity it is to be there when it happens. And again, keep keep in mind that that imagery of the triumphal entry where Jesus is marching into Rome, everyone's screaming triumph. The battle is won. The enemy's been defeated. And we're now celebrating triumph, triumph, because of what he's done. That's what we're witnessing. That's what we're sharing with people. We've already won the battle. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what, what's happened on the cross. We thank you for what you've done. You've won the battle, and we celebrate and we cry out triumph in your glory. And that, that victory, what it secured us, is, is not just a, a, an eternal destiny in heaven and a new earth. It hasn't just removed our past and our sins. It's made us new. It's made us into someone different. So good, so holy now, that you yourself can take up permanent residence inside of us. May we trust that. And may we be people of faith, not just when we're together, not just with one another, but with others as well. May we live out that faith and be a witness and look for those opportunities that you're inviting us to share who you are with people. I pray, Lord Jesus, that there would be a massive awakening, that there would be a massive people that come to faith because of what you're doing through us. And so we offer ourselves up to you to be used by you in any way, in any given moment, with any given person. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.